When Pastor Don asked me to preach this morning as he was going to be away with uh, family for an early Christmas celebration, he encouraged me to continue the series theme in this Advent season of Expect the Unexpected. And it's a theme that I think is entirely appropriate when you really stop to think from the Bible about how different the events and realities surrounding the birth of Jesus, how different they are from the sentimentalized, saccharinized, I made that word up, ways that so many think about Christmas, even among Bible-believing Christians. And I'm not trying to offer a typical lament about losing the true meaning of Christmas, because to be honest, I don't even think that contrast, the way it's usually drawn out, goes far enough. Because what really happened when the Son of God was born into the world, when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, what really happened was in some of the most profound ways, almost entirely unexpected. But it can be hard for us to feel that and to hear that as we read the Christmas story filtered through kind of years of feeling it and hearing it a certain way. But remember the Old Testament history and story? God created a perfect world for mankind. We tragically rebelled and fell into sin and came under the deserved curse and its consequences. But then God, right away, really, in his great mercy, was determined to launch a rescue mission, a plan to reassert his gracious, saving rule and reign, to bring all the blessings back, and to redeem us from the misery and bondage to sin and Satan, like the one Christmas carol puts it, remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day, to save us all from Satan's power when we had gone astray. And as the story unfolds, it focuses on God's calling of Abraham and then the people of Abraham and the nation of Israel. But even though Israel failed to keep the covenant God made, God remained faithful and then promised a new plan, a new covenant for rescuing and redeeming us and bringing back his kingdom, a plan that would center in the sending of Messiah. The word means anointed one. Ultimately, it means the king who would come to save and to rescue. Beginning with Israel, but then beyond Israel, to save the entire fallen world that was in sin and error pining. We read about it in glorious passages from Isaiah, like chapter 9, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government, the reign, the rule will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Prince of Shalom, the way things were supposed to be of the greatness of his government and peace, 
When he reigns again and the shalom, the way things are supposed to be, of that administration, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. Finally, from that time on and forever, and there's the guarantee, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And then again, the pictures like we get from Isaiah chapter 11. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. If you've ever watched the National Geographic special, that's not how it goes right now. The calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. These are just beautiful images, but they're made to show the reversal of all the miseries, of all the violence, of all the pain and suffering in this cursed world. And so there in Luke 2 that was read for us for the scripture reading, what we're really reading is the story of it all starting to come to pass. It's all now starting to play out in the birth of this baby in little obscure backwater Bethlehem. It all comes to its climax when the angel announces, I bring you good news of great joy which shall be to all the people. For unto you, finally, is born in the city of David, the Savior, the long-expected Savior, who is Christ, that is, the King who saves, who is the Lord. No wonder, then, that all of a sudden, the great company of the heavenly host, and that word host means the armies of heaven, because we've been in a battle ever since the Garden of Eden. No wonder heaven's army breaks out into praise of God, saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace. That long-waited-for shalom. On earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests, who will experience his amazing, saving grace. That announcement meant the king who would rescue, redeem, and restore. He's finally here. So, now what? What next? especially if you knew all the Old Testament promises and prophecies about what would happen when the Messiah comes, 
this ultimate son of David sent to reassert the reign of God and to roll back all the miseries and consequences of the curse. Now you've got a virgin-born baby heralded by heaven's armies and an angel unambiguously identifying that baby boy is the Savior we've been waiting for. Now what? It's just going to be great. One victory for good after another. Right? Well, to be honest, it's not at all what you'd expect. First of all, in Matthew's account of what happens next, a petty and paranoid and perverse King Herod, entirely unsentimental about the news of a newborn king, launches an all-out attack, determined to assassinate this apparent rival, when he heard there's a new king who's born king of the Jews, he didn't spiritualize it. He's like, uh, I'm king of the Jews. Now there's another one, a rightful one. And so he launches his attack, his assault. And all the baby boys in the age range of Jesus are massacred in Bethlehem. Did you think that's how it would go next once Messiah comes? Did you see that coming? Next, the Holy Family already operating under a cloud of shame and scandal. Joseph was not the baby's father, and at least some people knew that. The Holy Family become refugees to a very foreign place, to Egypt. Refugees desperate to escape Herod's madness. How about that? Was that what you would expect in light of Isaiah's prophecies about the coming king who'd be born as a baby and as a son? And the angel's announcement, an anthem? Even when they get back, another divinely given dream warns Joseph that Jesus is still in danger. So they have to head to Nazareth instead of heading home. Fast forward to John the Baptist, and I've reflected and taught a little bit about him lately. Quite an unusual fellow in the first place to be the primary human herald of the Messiah, the locust-eating John the Baptist, how does life go for John, the Messiah's right-hand man? He gets the amazing privilege of getting to herald Jesus as Messiah. He's the one who gets to baptize him and to say and to announce, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the one who gets to hear God himself, the voice from heaven, really talking this time, and the voice from heaven, and he's the one who gets to hear this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. He is Messiah's right-hand man. And how does it go for him? He knows the Isaiah prophecies about once Messiah comes, he'll deliver the oppressed, he'll rescue the prisoner. How does it go for John the Baptist? Another Herod. Another Herod the king, a relative with an even worse wife, Herodias, and their, sorry, despicable daughter, 
And John the Baptist, Messiah's right-hand man, gets caught up in the politics of the treacherous Herod family and the debauchery of it. And she's doing a dance, and the father gets proud, and who knows what, and in front of the company he says, you can have whatever you want, up to half my kingdom. And that terrible mother-daughter conspiracy, I'll tell you what we want, the head of John the Baptist. Is that how you thought it would go once Messiah comes? Not surprisingly, eventually, John, who one point said, look, the Lamb of God, sends word to Jesus from prison and says, are you the one who was to come? Or should we look for another? And his head was handed to that wicked Herodias, literally, on a plate. Talk about failed expectations. Talk about God. What in the world? As for Jesus himself, well, this time it's the Apostle John who sums it up pretty succinctly about this Messiah who was to come. He came to what was his own, but his own people did not accept him. And that's an understatement. Because his own people, the political and theological leaders in particular, actually made sure that pagan Pontius Pilate, acting for what was supposed to be the despised, occupying power, pagan Rome, had Jesus killed off and killed in a way reserved only for the worst of the worst. Talk about unexpected. And yet, Stay with a little longer because after all, on the third day, this same Jesus whom they crucified, God raised from the dead. That's a huge signal because death is the last and greatest enemy. Death could not keep its prey, Jesus my Savior. He tore the bars away, Jesus my Lord. And his resurrection, the New Testament declares that he was, in fact, he is, in fact, after all, Son of God, Savior, Messiah, King, Judge, and Lord. So, okay, what about now? That's what the disciples wanted to know. That's what was uppermost in their minds after their 40 days of intense interaction with the resurrected Jesus. As it says in Acts 1, Lord, is this the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? We have to admit, the whole crucifixion thing, we had hoped that you were Messiah, then that happened, and the Bible says, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. There's no way you could have been Messiah when you saw the curse because we didn't understand at the time you were becoming a curse instead of us and in place of us. But now we finally got that, passed that. Resurrection has happened. You even say that all authority in heaven on earth has been given to you. Now, are you going to... Do everything your word said you were going to do to restore. 
But it's still not that simple. There's still going to be a delay until the kingdom comes in glory. Who knows how long? The disciples, when Jesus left them there on that day, described in Acts 1, they didn't know how long it would be. Two years? 20 years? Over 2,000? And so, in one sense, Jesus and the New Testament writers make clear that the kingdom is already a reality. Jesus on the cross, even while dying in suffering and weaknesses, announces it is accomplished. It sure didn't look like it, but it is finished. It is accomplished. The resurrection ratifies that reality. He ascends to the right hand of God the Father Almighty from which he'll come to judge the living and the dead. But the New Testament is just as clear that the answer to the question about the arrival and the return of the reign of God is also not yet. And I don't know if you've thought about it very much before, but that's where you live. That's where we are right here today on December 13, 2015. Is the kingdom of God a reality? In some senses already, fully forgiven, justified, we've been transferred from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of the Son whom he loves. By new birth, Jesus says, through whom we see and enter the kingdom of God. And we have the Holy Spirit, the, the animating power of the kingdom, to begin to work in us and to make us new, to regenerate us, to change us, to break the power of canceled sin, and to make us more and more citizens of that kingdom who lived by its values, who herald its message, and seek to do its work in the world. It's already... But it's also not yet. And it's really, really important that we realize this for some really important, profoundly practical reasons. Because if we're not careful, we can get fooled into what I call kind of a health and wealth gospel light. And if that happens, we will end up way too attached to this world and not well aimed at all towards the world to come. And that has all kinds of really bad effects, but I really only have time for one this morning. If we're not clear that in, while in one sense the kingdom of God, the salvation blessing of God is already, but in many crucial ways it's not yet, then we will simply not know what to make of it when the really heavy-duty kinds of trials and hardships come into our lives and persist in our world. And as one of your pastors, I know that some in this room are right in the middle of such hurt and hardship and heartache right now. 
Even more of us have loved ones very close to us who are in that kind of dark and deeply painful place. What good news does the church have for people in such a place in their lives? How in the world does the gospel, the good news that Jesus is the Savior, how does it relate that he's the rescuer to someone who's just learned she has cancer, to a head of a household who's just lost his job, to a spouse who knows the marriage is just about to crumble, to a mom and dad with a prodigal son that's breaking their hearts, to the husband or wife facing their first Christmas without their lifetime love. Those believers, in those kinds of terrible trials that maybe aren't just going to go away in a little while, I mean, I said health and wealth gospel light because, as I've said before, we know we don't go all the way with it. We don't think that God wants us crazy rich and crazy healthy and well all the time. We know that's not really the story. But I think somewhere we've soaked in this idea, if I basically play by the rules, if I'm basically faithful to God and give myself and my family and my business and my life to God, even if trial comes, surely it's not going to last very long or go very deep. But that was never promised for this life and this world. Those believers in those kinds of trials want to know, when is God going to come through? When is Jesus, this rescuer, going to show up? How long until he rescues me with the rescue I so desperately want and long for? Does he love me or not? Is he going to do the good he's promised or not? And the truth is, not much of the time, but sometimes, for some, that longed-for relief and rescue just isn't going to come. Wait. I mean, it's not going to come in this life, in this world, not in the way we want or long for or expect, but it will come just not yet. Remember all those suffering saints from the Old Testament times, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, Joseph and Moses, Isaiah and Micah, the ones who had all those promises about the Redeemer and Rescuer who was going to come and usher them into a gloriously ransomed kingdom of Israel at the hub of a redeemed, restored, and righteous world. Well, this is what the writer to Hebrews says about them. Hebrews 11:13 after chronicling much of what they experienced it says all these people died still trusting still waiting wait a minute if it doesn't happen by the time you die it's not going to happen right if the promise isn't fulfilled by the by that time then it went unfulfilled right 
They were waiting for this heavenly promised land, this God-given promised land, that is. They were waiting for God to rescue and to show up and to save. They were waiting and hoping and waiting and hoping. Years, decades, trusting. And they died still trusting. What is They did not receive the things promised, the writer bluntly says. They only saw them. Well, what in the world does that mean? How did they see them? It can only mean they saw them as the promises and prophecies of the Word of God described and portrayed them. That's how they saw them. And it says, and they welcomed them from a distance because they didn't possess them yet. Admitting they're foreigners and strangers on earth. In this world, in this life, we're not the big dog. We're not the big winners. Not in this world. We're, we're resident aliens. We're the refugees. And then the writer says, people who talk like that, people who talk that way, show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they'd been thinking of the country they left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, and then a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And in the last book of the Bible, the Apostle John makes sure we know the name of that city. What's its name? New Jerusalem. Because you see, as God's new covenant people, we have our own prophecies and promises in God's word that we're supposed to live by that we're supposed to set our hopes on, that are supposed to be for us the way we see the glory that's really, truly ahead in our history. And so John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city. That's the city we're waiting for. The new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among men, and he will dwell with them. They'll be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. That's been the covenant promise we've been living on for thousands of years. And now, fully, finally, it comes true. And when it does... And he will wipe away every tear, every cancer tear, every jobless tear, every shattered relationship tear, every loneliness tear. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning, or crying, or pain. For the old order of things has passed away, and he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making 
everything new. Do you believe that? Do you really think that's going to happen? And if maybe your answer to prayer, your rescue or redemption or healing or divine help doesn't show up till then. Now maybe it will because Paul himself who suffered so much and had a hard life still described God as the one who gives us everything richly for our enjoyment and often that's our experience. But if it isn't, can you wait and hope and trust till then. Would I be able to do what Abraham and Isaac and Moses and Micah and all the rest had to do? Would I be able to die still trusting? Truth is, when you really think about it, we all are in this same position ultimately to wait and hope, or even when things in life in this life are good, and even in this fallen world, the strengths and beauties of God's creation means that sometimes they will be good. Even then, at its best, this life is nothing compared to what is to come. Even when already seems pretty good, it can't hold a candle to the not yet. So I'm back to one of the most compelling passages to me in all the New Testament, and I need to hurry on. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly, Paul says candidly, we are wasting away. We are perishing. And by the way, that's true of every single one of us. It's true of some of the dear saints I visited in the hospital this week who were older and plagued by serious illness. And I, when I looked at them and I was thinking of this, I realized outwardly we're wasting away. But you know what? It's true of all of us. It's true also of the healthiest, fittest, strongest people I know. We're all still mortal. It's appointed on the man once to die. That's the reality for all of us. But, Inwardly, we're being renewed day by day. If we're nourished on the promises and prophecies of God's Word about that full and future glory in the city that's to come, for our light and momentary troubles, only Paul could get away with calling them that, are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. The eternal glory the life in the city. And so we make this decision. We fix our eyes not on what is seen, not as what we're just pressing up right against us, the trouble, the trial, the hardship. We fix our eyes not on that, but on what is unseen. For what is seen, intense as it is, is as we temporary. But the glory that's unseen so far, seen only by faith, it is eternal. And so we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel. 
When Emmanuel arrives, when the day spring rises, we learn that redemption has only begun. To be sure, it's a magnificent only. The final blood is shed. The debt is paid. Forgiveness is purchased. God's wrath is removed. Adoption is secured. The down payment's in the bank. The first fruits of harvest are in the barn. The future is sure. The joy is great, John Piper writes. But the end is not yet. Death still snatches away. Disease still makes us miserable. Calamity still strikes, Satan still prowls, flesh still wars against the spirit, and sin still indwells. And so we still groan, awaiting our adoption, the redemption of our bodies, Romans 8, 23. And so we live, as the Bible says, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Pretty much rarely is it one or the other. It's almost always, to some degree, both. Even at Christmas, especially at Christmas. Sorrowful yet always rejoicing. And so I ask that the final song that we sing be one of those songs that captures that mood. Already but not yet. Fulfillment of glorious promises, yes but consummation in the new earth with new bodies and no sin and no more tears? Not yet. And so the person of faith is left confident but still crying out, Come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lowly exile here until the Son of God appears. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you will teach us how to live and walk by faith and trusting in this time between the times thankful for every salvation blessing that's already, while we wait and trust and hope in the glory, that final perfect peace and happiness and joy that is not yet. We pray in the name of Messiah. Amen.